It was a dark night in Glastonbury. Professor Margaret Murray stood in her small garden and built a fire. Her bright blue eyes flashed in the flickering light, and the crackle of her fire rang out through the quiet of the town. Few people were up at this late an hour. Even fewer were preparing to cast a spell. Margaret, staring at the wax doll in her hand, smiled to herself as she considered what a rational woman she usually was. But wasn't it rational to try out a bit of the ancient magic on the off chance that it would work? World War I was ravaging Europe, and she wasn't much use on a battlefield. She figured maybe a little witchcraft could help the cause. Perhaps an incantation on Kaiser Wilhelm would help. She tossed a little wax doll of the Kaiser into the hissing flames and let loose a wild, happy laugh. The little wax body melted almost instantly into nothing. Then, with a jaunt turn of her proper little heel, Margaret turned back into the house. She had a book to write. And even if her spell didn't change the course of the war, maybe her book would start an academic revolution. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Historical Figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. Today's episode is part of our series on Halloween, where we delve into the fascinating traditions behind the world's scariest holiday. If you enjoy this episode of Historical Figures, be sure to check out the rest of the ParCast Presents Halloween feed on Spotify. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today we're discussing Professor Margaret Murray, a first-wave feminist known as both the Old Woman of Egyptology and the Grandmother of Wicca. Margaret was a pioneering Egyptologist and the first female archaeology lecturer in all of the United Kingdom. But she's even better known for her research on England's witches. She was one of the first to take up the subject of the witch cults of England, and her writings became wildly influential. They'd eventually serve as a foundation for modern Wicca. Though her research on witches would become discredited, her cultural impact has stood the test of time. Margaret Alice Murray was born in Calcutta, India on July 13, 1863, when India was still a part of Britain's massive colonial empire. Her family, with its British origins, was staunchly part of the colonial elite. 
They lived in the walled European portion of the city in privilege. Margaret's contact with local Indians was mostly limited to interactions with her family's household staff of 10. But Europeans in the colonies could never fully shield themselves from their environments. The occasional trip outside of the European quarter would have reminded the Murrays of the simmering tensions around the country. Even as a tiny child, Margaret knew about the bloody 1857 Indian Rebellion. A youth raised amongst such stark tensions between the haves and have-nots left a big influence on Margaret. She would carry vivid memories of her early years in India throughout her life. They likely primed her to see the world as a place full of fascinating, if often brutal, difference. But in 1870, she was abruptly forced to leave India. Margaret and her sister Mary, like many Anglo-Indian children, were sent back to England to live with relatives so that they could learn to be proper English ladies. Margaret was just seven years old when she was placed in the care of her uncle John, whom she would later call a dominant male. But the uncomfortable displacement would give Margaret something incredibly valuable. Uncle John was an amateur antiquarian. He was deeply knowledgeable about local church architecture, antiquities, earthworks, and standing stones like Stonehenge. And as he shared his passion with his little nieces, Margaret fell in love with the ancient world instantly. After three years in England, Margaret's mother picked up her daughters and took them to Bonn, Germany. It's not entirely clear why they moved, but while there, Margaret became fluent in German. Then, in 1877, when Margaret was 14, the Murray family reconvened in London. During these constant upheavals, Margaret continued to show interest in the ancient world. And upon returning to London, her interest would only increase. In London, the girls were taught French by a man named Monsieur Mariette. Mariette's brother just so happened to be the great Egyptologist, Auguste Mariette. This was an incredible coincidence. Modern European Egyptology only began in 1799 with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, modern researchers' first key to decoding Egyptian hieroglyphics. Less than 100 years later, Egyptology was still in its infancy. Monsieur Mariette may have been hired to teach Margaret French, but his most important influence was exposing her to the world of the pharaohs. She vowed that one day she would make it to Egypt. Margaret's family returned to Calcutta in 1880 when she was 17. There, the early years of Margaret's career were spent in nursing, an adventurous choice for a young Anglo-Indian woman. She proved during those years that she was unafraid of hard work. More importantly, she genuinely enjoyed the profession. So much so that when she returned to England in 1886, she tried to further her nursing education. Unfortunately, she was rejected from attending nursing school because of her diminutive height. She was under five feet tall. Sadly, there was no way to pursue a nursing career in England without further training. But instead of staying defeated by the rejection, Margaret knew it was time to find a new path. To her surprise, an article in The Times helped point the way. 
According to the Times, a new subject was being offered at University College London, Egyptology. The college had hired famed archaeologist W.M. Flinders Petrie to spearhead the new department. Margaret, perhaps thinking back on Uncle John and Monsieur Mariette, was fascinated and excited. Luckily, she was able to act on that fascination. University College London, or UCL, was one of only a few British universities that accepted women in the 1890s. In January 1894, 30-year-old Margaret Murray joined one of the first classes on Egyptology in all of England. The first days of classes were a blur of confusion, and not just for Margaret, but for all the students, many of whom were women. The students weren't confused by how unfamiliar the new subject was. They were confused by its teacher. While Flinders Petrie was off excavating in Egypt instead of teaching, his courses were taught by his assistant, Francis Griffith. Griffith may have been a talented linguist, but he was a terrible teacher. The students squinted their eyes in confusion at the complicated ancient Egyptian translations Griffith spelled out on the chalkboard. They glanced at each other with mounting panic as he explained the progression of the words. Nothing he said made sense. His descriptions were as opaque as the material itself. As Margaret would later put it, they were floundering in a sea of grammar. But Margaret was going to learn to swim through. She drew on the diligence and resourcefulness she displayed as a nurse and formulated a plan. First, she found a German textbook on ancient Egyptian grammar to supplement Griffith's lessons. Luckily, her German was still excellent, thanks to those childhood years in Bonn. Then, she put hours into her studies outside of class, working her way through the dense pages and slowly puzzling out exactly what Griffith was saying in class. Her determination and her German did the trick. Soon, as she put it, she was no longer floundering, but beginning to swim. She realized that she had a real talent for academic study. When Petrie returned to London in the early summer of 1894, he was duly impressed with Margaret's progression in class. This little woman, he realized, was a force to be reckoned with. He marveled at Margaret's burgeoning language skills, and more importantly, her exactitude with a drawing pen, an important skill in a field that demanded copious amounts of drawing. Photographic illustrations were too expensive to reproduce in books, so facsimiles supplemented most Egyptology texts. Petrie wasted no time taking advantage of Margaret's skills. He assigned her the task of reproducing the carvings he discovered on his dig. Her work was so excellent that, going forward, she became Petrie's chief illustrator. But Petrie didn't just use Margaret to enhance his own research. He pushed her to start conducting her own independent studies. Margaret, though flattered and intrigued, was still new to the subject and to advanced academic study in general. She had been at UCL for less than a year, and she didn't know where to start. She was upfront with Petrie about that. But Petrie acted like a true mentor, brushing off her concerns and assured her that he would be there to help throughout the process. He suggested her first topic, the descent of property in Egypt's old kingdom, and showed her how to best conduct her research. 
and then she was off. She took careful notes on her subject and dedicated hours to learning the proper article format. And then she got down to the business of writing. In 1895, her first article was published in the only English periodical on archaeology at the time, Proceedings of the Society of Biblical Literature. In a field as small as Egyptology, this publication was enough to bring Margaret to the attention of the discipline's key players. She wasn't one of them, yet, but the star of Miss Margaret Murray, as her byline read, was starting to rise, and Margaret was thrilled. As good as it felt to publish, however, Margaret was hungry to get out to a dig. Everything she read and discussed in her classes was based on field research. She wanted to be a part of that front line. She dreamed about walking through the same sand as the ancients and running her palms along their sun-bleached stones. As one of Petrie's mentees, it shouldn't have been difficult to get on one of his yearly winter digs. But in 1897, something happened to stymie Margaret's hopes. That summer, Petrie married Hilda Erlin, another woman from the UCL Egyptology department. And Hilda, like Margaret, was trained in drawing facsimiles. That was one of the main skills Margaret had hoped to contribute to an excavation. But now, on every dig, Petrie would surely choose his wife to accompany him instead of Margaret. Margaret was crushed, but she wasn't about to give up. She knew her career was just getting started. She'd just have to prove that, wife of the boss or not, she deserved a place out in the field. It wasn't a question of if she could get there, but when. Coming up, Margaret works herself to the bone, determined to make her mark on Egyptology and get to Egypt herself. Now back to the story. In 1895, 32-year-old Margaret Murray got her first academic paper published a year after joining University College London's Egyptology department. She quickly proved that she was one of the school's most promising students. But what Margaret really wanted was to get to Egypt on an excavation. When the head of the Egyptology department married another student with similar skills to Margaret's in 1897, Margaret suspected he'd take his new bride with him instead. Margaret's fear of being second string proved to be right, for now. But in 1898, she started to see another path to the top of the department, teaching. Flinders Petrie, her mentor and the head of UCL's Egyptology department, asked her to take over the university's beginner language classes. She enthusiastically dove into the task. This was somewhere she could do good work and perhaps prove herself as such an excellent member of the department that she'd finally make it out to Egypt. She discovered she enjoyed teaching, and her pupils loved her too. She was a natural storyteller and wove together information in compelling ways that made sense to her students. Unlike Griffith, it turned out that Margaret's language learning skills translated into teaching skills. Her success as a teacher, in turn, led to a promotion. The following year, in 1899, she was officially appointed a junior college lecturer, 
the first woman working in archaeology to hold that honor in the entire United Kingdom. But with such a high honor came a grueling schedule. During the winter months, while Petrie was off excavating with his wife, Margaret shouldered a heavy class load, and in the summer, she helped the Petries catalog their finds and present them to the public. Realizing she was stuck in London for the time being, Margaret decided she might as well throw herself into making the university her home. That meant, first and foremost, making it a home to all the female students and faculty. She saw how they were sidelined in every aspect of life at the university, from the classroom to facilities around the school, like gendered sitting rooms. And she hated it. It simply wasn't fair or right. So Margaret took action. She reached out to women students and faculty, creating alliances and offering support. She made the disparity between the male faculty's lounge and the female faculty's sitting room her rallying call, and she campaigned relentlessly for equal conditions until she prevailed, at least in terms of the lounges. She was becoming a prominent figure in the university, despite her relatively low status. But unfortunately, respected reputation didn't translate to a prominent salary. She made just 40 pounds a year, that's under $6,000 today. To stretch her finances, she took up lecturing outside UCL in the evenings. It wasn't an easy life, but Margaret seemed to draw on endless and relentless reserves of energy. It's likely in part this energy that led Petrie to finally invite her out into the field in 1902, when she was 39 years old. But most of all, there were some strange carvings at his next excavation site, and he needed her skills to translate. The dig was in Abydus, Egypt, and the mysterious structure they were to excavate was buried under loose sand. The building, located near a great First Dynasty temple and several royal tombs, appeared to be funerary in nature. Margaret was excited, but when she got to Egypt, she got a wake-up call as to just how uncomfortable or unromantic the environment really was. As Margaret later wrote about the experience, when they were working on site, there were continual rivulets of sand running down the sides of the building, and a high wind would bring down half a ton of sand and stones in one fall. To sit in a deep pit under an irregular but continuous fire of small stones, with the chance of a big stone coming down too, is an experience more amusing to look back upon than to endure. Margaret was a level-headed, down-to-earth person, and not one to glorify hardship. But despite the conditions, Margaret loved every minute of being in Egypt. As she'd later explain about Egyptology, what is so interesting is that there is always something new round the corner waiting to be discovered. In addition to translating texts they found on site, Margaret's role included working alongside Hilda Petrie on facsimiles. Her illustrations would later be published as a volume under her own name, alongside an important, well-received essay on the worship of Osiris. Her first excavation lasted several months, and Margaret acquitted herself well, despite the constant, unamusing hail of rocks. 
In fact, Margaret did such a good job that the following winter, in 1903, Petrie invited her to go to Saqqara, Egypt. They were tasked with making facsimiles of the ancient royal burial grounds. Margaret's facsimiles, as usual, were impeccable. But the trip to Saqqara would be her last time in Egypt. With Petrie in the field every winter, Margaret was needed in London to teach classes. There was no one else Petrie trusted to hold down the department. And over the following years, her career as a teacher continued to accelerate. Her class roster expanded to include ancient Egyptian religion and history, as well as language, including both ancient Egyptian and Coptic, its later descendant. And in time, she was invited to advise museums around England on their Egypt collections, and occasionally to write their catalogs. In May 1908, when she was 45, Margaret was invited to perform the first ever public unwrapping of a mummy conducted by a woman. The mummy was a priest that Petrie found in a tomb called the Tomb of Two Brothers. Hosted at the Manchester Egyptian Association, for an hour and a half, Margaret slowly and painfully unwrapped the body, one bandage at a time. She carefully recorded each removal for the museum catalog until finally she arrived at the mummified corpse. The 500-person audience was astonished and impressed as the little woman stepped away from the dead body with a proud smile. Margaret would go on to publish a book called The Tomb of the Two Brothers on that mummy, as well as the mummy that was found with it. Her text would remain a key publication on Middle Kingdom mummification practices well into the 21st century. Margaret was finding ways to maintain the excitement and surprise of Egyptology all the way from dreary England. It didn't matter if she was in London or Manchester. Her studies always seemed to promise something new just around the corner. And in between her mummy unwrappings and hieroglyphics translations, she continued her work for fair and equal treatment for women. She actively participated in the suffrage movement, though she kept her marching quiet. She feared that her politics might mar her professional reputation. Nonetheless, she was present at iconic marches like the Mud March of 1907 and the Women's Coronation Procession of June 1911. But the mainstream suffrage movement, like much of life in England, came to an abrupt halt in 1914 when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo and Europe was thrown into chaos. Everything in Margaret's life was put on hold. The war effort came first. Like most Brits, Margaret knew she couldn't sit by in the library writing a book on the ancients when men and women were dying in the trenches on the Western Front. Still a trained nurse, she knew she could help, despite the fact that, as she put it, women over the age of 40 were regarded by the authorities as completely beyond the age of any kind of usefulness. But at just over 50 years old, she packed her bags and headed to San Malo, Brittany. San Malo, a port city in the northwest of France, just across the English Channel, was host to a hospital staffed by British doctors. Here, Margaret was welcomed as an extra set of hands. She spent long days in the wards caring for wounded or dying men. 
but she wasn't destined to stay there throughout the war. After a few weeks, Margaret herself became ill with an unknown sickness. Margaret was sent to convalesce in Glastonbury, England in 1915. For the first time in decades, this incredibly active, energetic woman was doing nothing. It wasn't a scenario her constitution could handle for long. As the war raged on across the channel, Margaret started to look, curious as ever, at her own surroundings in Glastonbury. Something in particular that piqued her interest was the local legend of the Holy Grail. She began to notice place names in the legend that seemed to correspond with locations in the Egyptian Delta. Perhaps there was a connection here. She wrote up an article exploring the idea titled The Egyptian Elements in the Grail Romance. It was published in her mentor Flinders Petrie's new academic journal, Ancient Egypt, the next year. While it wasn't particularly well-received, the Egyptian elements in the Grail romance marked two important new beginnings for Margaret. Firstly, she was working with Petrie's journal, and she started to have articles published in almost every issue. She was then given charge of all German-language book reviews, thanks to her language skills, and eventually became joint editor. Secondly, and more importantly, the article marked the first time Margaret turned her sharp academic eye towards her own country. England was full of rich history and strange folk tales. She didn't have to go all the way to ancient Egypt to find mysteries worth untangling. After her article on the Holy Grail, Margaret started to move forward through the history of English legends, and it wasn't long before she landed on the stories of the medieval witches. At the time, the study of witches was limited and tended to fall into two extreme camps. One worked on the assumption that witches were real, worshiped Satan, and drew magical powers from his dark influence. The other asserted that accusations of witchery were the result of religious hysteria and that all the confessed witches were merely desperate, innocent women who broke under torture. This newer theory was by far the more popular amongst academics at the time. But Margaret began to wonder if there was some middle ground here. For all her love of the strange and the mysterious, Margaret was a firm rationalist and she couldn't believe that witches really were flying through the skies of Glastonbury. But she also wondered if perhaps there was more to the stories of these magical women than pure hysteria. She was a feminist, after all, and she understood keenly that women were often demonized for their power. Coming up, Margaret delves headlong into the world of witches. Now back to the story. While 50-year-old Egyptologist Margaret Murray was convalescing in Glastonbury, England during World War I, she started to notice some connections between ancient Egypt and old British legends. This led her to discover an entirely new field of study, witchcraft. Margaret was immediately hooked. She threw herself into her research, and in 1917, she published her first article on the subject in the academic journal Folklore. Around the same time, Margaret reportedly experimented with putting witchery into practice. One story goes that she melted a wax statue of Kaiser Wilhelm 
half joking, half curious about the results. The more she researched, the more she couldn't stop thinking about those women on broomsticks. Even when her department at University College London started up again in 1918 at the end of World War I. In between teaching classes on ancient Egyptian history, religion, and language, Margaret found time to research the subject and slowly but surely, a book started to take shape. Her career in Egyptology was continuing strongly. In 1921, she was promoted to the rank of lecturer at UCL. The following year, she'd be promoted again to senior lecturer and then again to assistant professor in 1924 at the age of 62, all without having been formally awarded a degree. She also finally got back to working in the field in the 1920s. This time on dig, she directed herself. She worked mostly in the Mediterranean islands. Unlike the Egyptian excavations, these digs could be conducted in the summer months when school was out, because the islands remained relatively cool. She was expanding her repertoire in the world of archaeology, no longer just focusing on Egypt. But it wasn't these digs that transformed her career. It was the publication of The Witch Cult in Western Europe. Published in 1921, the book took a practical look at the question of witchcraft in medieval Europe. It dismissed out of hand the idea that witches were in fact magical women who flew on broomsticks thanks to Satan-given powers. Nor, however, did it take up the other dominant strain of argument, that the whole idea of witches was manufactured by the medieval churches. Instead, the book argued that witches had existed and that their activities were considered unholy and nefarious to the majority of medieval European society. But these activities were not magical. Rather, witches were members of an underground movement secretly keeping pagan rites alive in Christian Europe. The Catholic Church was violently opposed to the existence of any other religions, and in fact even co-opted some pagan holidays and rituals as a way to win over converts. If the witches were practicing their rituals outside the structures of the church, it would have been crucial to keep them secret. But not all reviews of Margaret's book were positive. In fact, many contemporary scholars were displeased with the selectivity of her sources. She regularly used half-quotes and ellipses to eliminate ideas that didn't fit her argument, and she consistently ignored the role of symbolism in favor of sometimes strange literal arguments. For example, instead of trying to understand the social fears and histories that might have attached witches to the idea of Satan, she proposed that the devil in witch stories was simply a coven leader dressed in black, Perhaps he wore a specially formed boot or shoe in the shape of a cloven hoof. Well, but despite her questionable scholarly method and odd conclusions, the book was a runaway success. It was taken as fact by much of the public and was widely read and appreciated by scholars too. Margaret's approach to witchcraft was new and surprising, and it broke a critical deadlock among scholars that had prevented real, fact-based study of witches. 
Her name gained enough recognition in the field that in 1929, she was commissioned to write a new entry on witchcraft for the Encyclopedia Britannica, a respected tome that by 1929 had been around for over 150 years. Her entry would remain unchanged for the next four decades, ensuring the widespread influence of Margaret's ideas, no matter what the scholarly community may have thought of them. In 1931, UCL acknowledged Margaret's work in her other field, Egyptology, with an enormous symbolic reward, an honorary doctorate. She was so beloved by her students that they pooled their money to buy her doctoral robes, in part because her salary was still a pittance. The symbolic rewards didn't stop there. In 1932, she was made an honorary fellow of the college, a distinction rarely given to a woman. Margaret, however, wasn't one to rest on accolades. She was still writing and researching, and her attention was still on witchcraft. In 1933, at age 70, she published a second book on the subject entitled The God of the Witches. It was even more popular than her first, although it did receive similarly alarmed critiques from some academics. But her fans, including popular writers like Aldous Huxley and Robert Graves, didn't care. They were enthralled. The new book explained that pagan religion had retreated to remote countryside regions during the Middle Ages, where priests born into the peasant class secretly carried on the ancient rites. The descriptions she gave of these rites were graphic and attention-grabbing. Many of them were orgiastic or otherwise taboo. But the key argument was that none of them were actually magic. She maintained her distance from those early theories of Satan's flying disciples, Though that didn't stop her from occasionally casting a spell or two for fun. Interestingly, her interpretation of witches and their rites put a male coven leader in the central, powerful role. He represented the only divinity in her pagan witch cult, the Horned God. Despite being a staunch feminist herself, Margaret never read feminism into witchery. But while she was finding success in her latest book, Back at the university, she was experiencing bitter defeat. The same year The God of the Witches was published, her mentor and longtime colleague, Flinders Petrie, retired as chair of Egyptology. After the years she devoted to UCL and accompanying Petrie on his digs, Margaret expected to be promoted in Petrie's place. But UCL thought differently. At 70 years old, the department apparently deemed her too old for the position, and perhaps too female. They gave the job to a younger male member instead. Margaret, who'd worked tirelessly in the department for 40 years, was devastated. She stuck around for two more years, but in 1935, she decided it was time to retire rather than bear being passed over for someone younger and less experienced. It was a difficult departure, and surely not how she'd imagined she would one day leave the department she devoted most of her life to. As she put it in her autobiography, she left the Egyptology department for the last time in tears, as from a prison house full of bitterness and frustration. But Margaret was still Margaret. Unstoppably energetic even at 72, she wouldn't let her story end there 
or as she put it, she wouldn't be left on the shelf. After her retirement, she joined Petrie in Jordan to help him catalog his findings. Then she conducted her own dig in Petra, Jordan in 1937. She was back in the field once more and wrote the following about her time in Petra. Every excavation, no matter where it is, is always somewhat of an adventure, but I've always found that the more adventurous the work, the more uncomfortable is the life. Adventure is synonymous with discomfort. Sandstorms, scorpions, and snakes can make life definitely unhappy in some parts of the Near East. Margaret wasn't one to sugarcoat the hardship and daily discomfort of work in the field, but she never did get over the magic of her work. Work for her was lifeblood, and she'd do it until the day she died. Throughout her 70s and 80s, Margaret never lost touch with her work or her former colleagues. She popped into the Department of Egyptology on occasion, read at the British Library, and taught evening classes at the City Literary Institute on Egyptian history and Egyptian religion. Between 1952 and 1954, she was the president of the Folklore Society, thanks to her work on witches, which was categorized as part of the discipline. And throughout all of those years, she continued to publish academic writings. But in 1963, her penultimate book took on a different subject, her own life. She called her memoir, My First Hundred Years. Despite the humorous prediction of another hundred buried within the title, she didn't live out the year. On November 13, 1963, 100 years after she was born in Calcutta, Margaret Murray died in Wellen, north of London. Her legacy, however, lived on. At UCL and amongst archaeologists and Egyptologists, Margaret was remembered as a researcher and most of all, as a remarkable teacher. She trained several generations of scholars, beginning at a time when few universities offered courses in these areas at all, hence her title, the old woman of Egyptology. But beyond the spheres of archaeology and Egyptology, she's remembered for a very different reason. In 1954, retired British civil servant Gerald Gardner published a book called Witchcraft Today, heavily inspired by Murray's witch cult theory. This book, in turn, became the foundation for Gardner's modern-day witch cult, which sought to pick up the torch of Murray's medieval witches. Today, that cult is called Wicca, hence Margaret's second moniker, the Grandmother of Wicca. Many contemporary Wiccans understand that Margaret's work on witches has been largely debunked, but they don't care. According to Ashley Mortimer, a prominent Wiccan today, quote, it actually does not matter whether or to what extent Murray was right or wrong. The system that was developed works for its purpose, which is religious and spiritual development. And that in itself is enough. These Wiccans, perhaps inspired by the liberal interpretations that were involved in the making of their cult, have also been liberal about taking departures from Margaret's descriptions of medieval witchery. One major departure has been replacing Margaret's male horned god with a female goddess. For all her down-to-earth sense, 
Margaret would likely have been delighted by this contemporary update to her theories. She wouldn't have wanted to be stuck in the rearview mirror. Ironically, for someone who spent her entire life digging into the past, she herself instructed, never look backward, always look forward. You've had a happy life or an unhappy life, don't look back at it, because you'll feel you're on the shelf. Well, don't stay on the shelf. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Historical Figures for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Historical Figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Nora Battelle and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 